What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today was such a treat. I got a chance to sit down with longtime nutrition researcher Alan Aragon, an absolute legend in the space, somebody who I've learned a ton from over the years, and I know you guys will too. Truthfully, the connection wasn't the best during this episode, so it got choppy a couple times, but I'm going to do my best to edit things out. Alan and I discuss how to navigate the question, what should I eat? We talk about metabolic adaptation. We talk about metabolic damage. Can you really damage your metabolism permanently? We talk about the biggest loser study in reference to those two things. And we also talk about plateaus. You know, are they real? What's happening? What to do if you've actually plateaued? How to know if you've actually plateaued? And a lot of other things in between. I know you guys are going to love the episode. I appreciate you listening. Without further ado, let's get to it. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am blessed to be sitting with longtime nutrition researcher, Alan Aragon. How are you guys doing? Jordan, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, before we go forward, I got I to gotta ask a very important question. So is that your real last name or is that like an ex-Hollywood <laughs> stage name? That is my real last name, but if it was my stage name, I'd be, uh, I'd be all set to go. Oh, you definitely would. There's yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. My family, uh, when they came from Holland, they used to be, we were Von Lips, and then they chopped the Von off, and now it's just a ready-to-go stage name. <laughs> they were trying to assimilate. That's perfect, man. Yeah. That's perfect. I love it. Awesome. So I know my audience may not be particularly familiar with what you do and a lot of your research and the things that you've been a part of. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to for the last 20 years and maybe what you're doing now. Sure. I've covered kind of the whole range of, of what you could possibly do within the the uh, continuum of, of fitness careers. <laughs> so uh, I've done everything from in the trenches, uh, personal training at gyms, at, you know, at commercial gyms, at private gyms, uh, in homes. Um, and I've also had about a, well, more than a decade of private practice in nutritional counseling. So this all started in the early 90s. And so I am now at, at my 28th year in the industry. So there's kind of like three parts to what I've been involved with. First, there's the, the kind of hands-on in the training, personal training, in the trenches, personal training part. And then the second decade was uh, dominated by nutritional counseling. And now in the third decade of my career, it's mainly research and education and sort of relaying the findings and the wisdom of what I've learned through my career, kind of relaying that to the newer generation of professionals, as well as uh, trying to do my best to get through to through the thick skulls of the <laughs> <laughs> the bros, the general, yeah. the general public. Yeah. And of course, some of the thick skulls of, of the of the fitness professional population as well. It's a different kind of um, thick headedness, uh, different kind, different kind of thickness. Sure. Yeah. Um, was that a normal? Was that the 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 transition, the order of operations that you had set out initially, like being in the trenches and then uh, counseling and then research? Is that something that evolved over time? It, it honestly just evolved like that. I did not plan it. I I thought I was going to be forever a personal trainer, training um, in-person real people. That's what I thought I was going to retire doing. But, uh, you know, when you endeavor these things and you kind of go through the paces and as the years go by, you find out what you're good at and also what you're most interested in. And so as what I was good at began to intersect more with what I was interested in, then we kind of end up at the spot where I'm at now, where I get a lot of gratification out of seeing other fitness professionals succeed and um, make the world better, get the world better results. And it probably goes without saying, but it, but it's likely that having started in the trenches gives you some of that like real world applicability um, down to the average person, would you say? Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I always trip out at the thought of, uh, people getting started now where um, they basically get their start in, in online coaching and remote coaching and not necessarily in gyms uh, and in homes and, and with, with warm bodies, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it definitely makes a difference, I would say. 
Yes. Um, in the in non-comparative way, I'm making that transition myself from a decade of in-person training into the online space. And I don't, I cannot comprehend not having done it that way. Uh, and, or at least doing it well in the online space, not having done it first in person, like you said, with warm bodies. I mean, just too much, yes. too much, too much of a gap of understanding the individual, some facial expressions, movement cues, stuff like that, that kind of gets lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, the first question I want to throw at you is one that it's almost uh, as I'm reading it to myself, I wish we just had a better answer. And the question is, what the fuck should I eat? And why are we so confused about what to eat? And how can we answer that question in a way that's actually helpful for the individual? See, <laughs> the first part of your question w- was easy. And the second part was how can we answer that question and make it uh, palatable, digestible and understandable? Well, that's that's the difficult part. Um, so what everybody should eat is really <clears throat> it's really a goal dependent thing it really is a goal dependent thing so if we're talking about uh general health for the general public we we kind of have that model in place which has a, a pretty good track record to it and that would be your standard relatively diverse range of food groups within and across the groups um, with an emphasis on whole foods and minimally refined foods and an emphasis on an abundance of um, plant foods. And well, as far as the animal foods are concerned, um, uh, a good balance of, of those types of things like, um, like dairy, meat, poultry, and uh, seafood. And then you've got your your various uh, range of, of starches and that and the whole umbrella of the starchy foods where, uh, uh, under which you can kind of subdivide into the grain group and tubers and legumes and fruits and um, well actually wait a minute no take take some of the fruits out of there we're still on starches mm-hmm. but I guess if I were to distill that this already confusing answer um, it would be kind of that old standard food groups based approach where you have a balance of uh, servings from each of the groups, probably the best uh, existing model that encompasses that or encapsulates that would be more or less a Mediterranean type of uh, eating pattern, which pretty much is characterized by, by what I just described. And, um, so that's kind of what people should eat with the Mediterranean model. There's no banned foods. There's no, uh, you can eat everything except dairy. You know, there's right. <laughs> there's none of that. Um, and so that's kind of kind of what people should eat. There's a lot of flexibility there, and outside of the goal of general health, uh, people have different athletic goals. People have different, not just athletic performance goals but people also have different body composition goals. Some people want to look like um, some version of, uh, of Brad Pitt in Fight, Fight Club, Club. Yeah. whereas other guys just, um, <laughs> they want to look like Phil Heath, you know? And then yet other guys uh, out there just uh, would want to look somewhere between um, normal and, and, and acceptable. In a very, <laughs> they have much lower standards, you know. Sure. So, it it's a good question because uh, it it has a lot of contingencies depending on the goal. Yeah, I think the first recognition is that it's wildly goal dependent, and I think that there are certainly going to be similarities and across most mm-hmm. healthy eating patterns. I think we see a lot of that in the in the uh, discussion of blue zones, where we see people with wildly different macronutrient breakdowns. But some of the things that you said in terms of eating a wide variety of foods. Um, you know, uh, um, a, like a high percentage of plant matter, usually calorie controlled, whether of course these people are likely not calorie counting, but having a diet that is calorie controlled and allowing people to maintain a healthy body composition, I feel are going to be things that are across the board, good pieces of information for people. Yep. Yep. That, that is pretty much it. And you, you mentioned the blue zones, which is interesting. Uh, the blue zones, I even think the blue zones can be improved upon, but they provide a good baseline model with some, some good principles that, um, that based on now it's, it's observational data. It's not 
necessarily this controlled experiment where we've systematically found out what what's the optimal way to do things but um observational data is is very useful in the sense that it it is able to leave strong clues and um, potential models to emulate so with the blue zones there's not just this component of the diet with the diet being um, an abundance of plant foods uh, and but most importantly not eating too much you know the, the the population in the various blue zones the populations are are all quite lean and uh, i think that mm, potentially might be the strongest unifying factor uh, as far as diet programming goes and then the other the other factor would be kind of the social um social social health or community health and strong family ties uh, interestingly, uh, the, the blue zone populations all have some sort of spiritual element. Um, but either way, strong social ties, uh, strong family ties, and um, just a very a, a very cohesive social element there that, that kind of keeps people healthy physically, but also mentally. So there's, there's not a, a lot of excess bad stress going on in people's lives. And of course, you have the non-sedentary component as well so yeah blue zones are interesting yeah i don't think you can i don't think you can discuss the blue zones and and immediately you know uh um have this reductionist mindset where you only look at the diet i think it's a way of life the blue zones represent a way of life that promotes longevity it doesn't just discuss the specific macro breakdown or a diet i mean these people are living in close ties with a sense of purpose a sense of community i mean they do some things that also might be on the list of things that you probably wouldn't say the healthiest person on earth would do. They regularly consume alcohol and we can debate about, you know, the potential for alcohol to have a beneficial effect. Some of them even regular have regular tobacco use and whether that's a hormetic effect or maybe it has nothing to do with the health at all. And it just happens to be something that also bonds these people together and has them tied together, mm -hmm. which in the end might have an, in an, in the aggregate, a net benefit, beneficial effect. I agree. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And the second part of the question would be like, wh why are we sitting here right now? Why why isn't what we just said something that we can chew up yeah. and give to each individual? <laughs> why are we so confused? Why are there so much discussion about this? Why can't we get on the same page? Well, because the answer can't be boiled down into less than three bullet points that are really comprehensible uh, by everyone with a fifth grade education and up. You know, so so if if we were to attempt to bullet point, what are we supposed to eat? Um, I I think that maybe looking at the goals and objectives might be a good start. So, eat what it takes to stay lean. Eat what it takes to stay active. Um, eat what it takes to maintain your your lean body mass, and. Maybe, a, but see, we're already, we used up Too our much bullet context, points. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, a, a fourth bullet point would be. We lose the people. You're losing yeah, people, we lose <laughs> We're done. We're done. I mean, you, you've got to respect, you have to eat according to the energy needs of your goal. So you have total energy to consider there. And then a fifth bullet point would be that there's a lot of evidence um, showing that, that a diet that's predominated by ultra processed foods is generally a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so then we have to kind of go into that that rabbit hole of okay, okay, what's what's processed and what's too processed, too ultra processed, refined. You know, what are we talking about here? And so by then we lose people after the third bullet point. And so, um, yeah, I think that's why it's it's just so difficult. And that's why we're talking about it because it's a bigger conversation than a, than a three bullet point thing that's super duper simple. And, and something something I've heard you say on a podcast that I have said to people so many times is that this is difficult because this isn't something where, you know, if you stop a random person on the street and you ask them about, you know, how did LeBron James play in the finals and they didn't watch basketball, they don't watch basketball, they don't know anything about basketball, they will opt to not make a comment. They will not have an opinion. They will recognize that their opinion doesn't hold weight, but everybody eats. And we all eat and we all have this, this intimate relationship, especially with body composition for what worked for me and what I heard and what my sister did. And we all eat and we all partake. And I think that that gives us that false sense of 
that our you know our opinion our opinions hold equal weight and we're, we we don't understand that it's not something that we understand fully just because we partake yeah yeah no doubt about it man um it's like it's like if uh now now and and of course we all eat and some of us who have achieved um certain physique goals or certain aesthetic goals or athletic goals that we're kind of proud of, we automatically take some kind of ownership and sense of authority over that process or, or, or that goal. And so with, with people not necessarily being acquainted with sort of the way that science works and the way that, um, that claims can or cannot be fairly made, then the tendency definitely is to say, Hey, I did this. So if it works for me, it must work for everybody else. But the problem with that is I, I liken it to somebody with a really great marriage. Okay. So this person's got a great marriage. Great. So can they now be, uh, are they a marriage expert? Are, are they, a, can, can they just go ahead and do, um, marriage counseling, you know, um, without any of the, the degrees and, or the credentials that, that, people learn to make it. Now, uh, on the flip side, uh, I think it's it's better to listen to a marriage counselor who has some experience with marriage <laughs> rather than somebody who has never been marriage and is and is specializing in marriage counseling, you know what I mean? Sure. So, it kind of does go both ways, but fact of the matter is yes, we all of us eat and many of us think that okay, well since we since I eat, I have dominion over how to tell people to eat because I've achieved this body and I've achieved this health. And that's just, that's just not the way it goes. Yeah. And it works both ways. I mean, this worked for me and thus I'm allowed to, you know, it is uh, uh, solidified as the thing to do versus something that doesn't work for me. And now all of a sudden that is bad. You know, I, every time I eat carbs, it's bad. Carbs must be bad. Every time I do this, I gain weight. And we start to just kind of funnel in the things that worked are good. And the things that didn't work mm -hmm. are bad. And it must be like that for everybody. Yeah, and, and people speak very passionately from that standpoint of personal experience. And so they end up preaching it rather than saying, okay, well, this is my experience, my personal experience, your mileage may vary. They end up saying this is the way it is absolutely and universally. And unfortunately, that's what people listen to, those kind of passionate, absolutely framed types of statements and claims. Yes. And when it comes to like the dissemination of information down to the individual, a lot of people aren't following people like yourself. They're getting a lot of their information from diet books, not written by dietitians. And, and, and I think I'd heard you said, and I, and I Googled it earlier of the percentage of top nutrition books, not actually written by dietitians, written by physicians. And again, they may, the information that does not speak directly to the information in the book, but it does leave clues of, as to, you know, is that really who we should be directed to when it comes to nutrition information? Yeah, that is such a minefield, Jordan. Um, just the, the, the fact that the majority of best-selling diet books are written by medical professionals who, by and large, do not have more than just a bare basic minimum education in, in nutrition itself, that's a problem. Uh, and, and we see that all the time when, when you crack open these books written by MDs <laughs> for the most part. Uh, it, it's just really their kind of wild ideas and speculations that they very loosely and, and presumptively connected the dots with. And then you're reading that uh, as somebody who is educated in, in this area and you just just face palm away and you go, oh, totally. well, everybody's going to believe them because they're Dr. So-and-so. Yep. And unfortunately, that's just that's just kind of the way it is. It's, it's unfortunate. We need more good dietitians out there and we need more people to sign up for your research review so people can uh, get up to speed on things. Thank you. Yes, yeah. and we do. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the second question of the day is discussion of damaging one's metabolism and the, the the context that i want to put this in is that people who've lost weight and we're going to break this down quite a bit i'm sure as this question's coming out people who've lost weight like did they do 
permanent damage to their metabolism. Yeah. And what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. Okay. People who have lost weight. Um, and, I, and not to, and not have, to I, I, I'm curious if we can utilize some of the biggest loser research um, yeah. around this is just what jumped into my mind as I said that. Mm. Okay. In the beginning, for somebody to have gained a significant amount of weight, um, there there are a lot of psychological factors that frame certain habits that are, are certain coping habits, um, certain habits that are used to kind of deal with the stresses of life. Uh, and, and these kind of maladaptive behaviors are reinforced over months and, uh, and usually years. And so changing those habits really becomes what, what the, in quotes, the metabolic damage is, you know, and I say in quotes because it has really nothing to do with your metabolism, but more to do with your psychological wiring and how you respond to um, emotional stress. And so uh, when you're talking about changes in metabolism that occur through drops in weight loss, it's not really a matter of um, drops in, in resting metabolic rate beyond what can be predicted by um, drops in, in lean tissue. So <clears throat> when, when taking a couple steps back, if we looked at the word metabolism, we can, we can just kind of interchange that with total daily energy expenditure. So the drop in and, and total daily energy expenditure can be split up into active energy expenditure and resting energy expenditure. And over here, active energy expenditure can further be split into non-exercise energy expenditure and exercise-related energy expenditure. So within those components and those subcomponents, it genuinely, uh, the bulk of the drop in total daily energy expenditure as people diet and think that their metabolism has slowed down or crashed or whatnot, the bulk of that decrease is in your non-exercise energy expenditure. And sure, there is resting energy expenditure that decreases with a loss of, um, of body weight, especially if you lose lean body mass. And it's very common for people to lose lean body mass as they go from uh, an obese state to uh, a normal weight state. And it's not necessarily unhealthy to lose a certain amount of lean body mass. Uh, because you kind of have a lot of leeway there. But um, <clears throat> what happens in addition to drops in non-exercise activity, energy expenditure, also called non-exercise physical activity, or also called uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, or the more convenient uh, acronym NEAT, also drops in NEAT. What, what happens also is um, almost a residual uh, appetite that remains that, that wants to fuel a, a certain prior level of, of lean body mass that you once had. So uh, there is a connection between lean body mass loss and your hunger levels after you've lost a bunch of body weight. And so aside from functional capacity and, and metabolic capacity, um, you, you would want to preserve as much as possible your lean body mass so um, you don't have this increased drive, this increased hunger, increased appetite that wants to get back the lean body mass that, that has been lost at the end of the rainbow. So that, that's kind of what people mistakenly uh, think is some kind of uh, untraceable or... or um, unaccountable drop in energy expenditure or this mysterious, in quotes, adaptive thermogenesis that happens as a result of losing weight. And, and there is some basis for, for people to have believed that adaptive thermogenesis or this unaccountable energy expenditure decrease beyond what can be predicted by losses in lean mass, that's adaptive thermogenesis. There is some um, basis for people having believed that 
And um, the basis actually is in the peer-reviewed literature with a, a publication that was in 2012 by Johansson and colleagues. And um, the title of that is Metabolic Slowing with Massive Weight Loss Despite Preservation of Fat-Free Mass. So that's the title of this study that made headlines in the nerd sphere anyway. <laughs> um, and it, it was kind of an explicit um, ex explanation and excuse, if you will, for uh, it being so difficult to maintain weight loss because what happened with this particular set of subjects was that they were burning five, uh, roughly 500 calories less than um, could have been predicted by their weight loss. And so 500 calories of, in quotes, metabolic adaptation can be considered kind of a big deal depending on who you are and, and what maintains you. Yep. So if you can imagine somebody removing a small meal from their day or kind of a substantial snack from their day, it can be kind of a big deal. And, and so now here, here's where we have to look at this research critically. So this research with this 2012 publication was done on the Biggest Loser contestants. And as you know, The Biggest Loser is a television show which is a 30-week contest of people with uh, severe obesity, so class three uh, obesity in the uh, towards the very high end of that. Over 40. Yes. BMI. Yes. And over 40 BMI. Mm -hmm. And um, that it was a 30-week competition with a, a very large cash prize at the end of the rainbow. I don't, I don't remember what the cash prize was, but it was enough for this television competition to function as a default uh, experiment on how fast can people lose massive amounts of weight and, and survive the experience. And so uh, even when you read interviews with Biggest Loser contestants who are willing to talk about it and maybe breaking the NDA or whatever, uh, you hear stories about eating 400 calories a day and doing eight to nine, eight to nine hours a day of usually some sort of inane type of exercise, uh, treadmill work, yep. cardio, mm -hmm. some form of cardio. Um, and so this, needless to say, this population has minimal external validity or minimal real world application to uh, the dieters and the general, pub general public, general population. And so we're looking at this this set of subjects, this set of, of, of weight loss contestants who are essentially killing themselves to get there. And who knows what kind of pharmacological help was instituted to either ramp up thermogenesis or to um, suppress appetite. I'm sure all the tricks in the book were used when you're looking at this massive cash prize. And, um, so, so yeah, I, I'm very skeptical that we can look at the, the Biggest Loser study, uh, which was the first publication was in 2012. And then there was a follow-up uh, publication in 2016, which showed that six years after the fact, six years after the actual um, initial weight loss, there was still a metabolic adaptation or metabolic damage, if you will, of right around 500 calories that kind of persisted six years after the contest. And so um, when that publication came out in, in 2016, uh, that was by Fothergill and colleagues. And the first one um, uh, was by Johansson and colleagues, the 2012 one. When the Fothergill um, publication came out, a, a lot of people just said, okay, well, that's it. It's metabolic adaptation. Six years after you lose a lot of weight. Uh, we can't get around it. We can't avoid it. And we're kind of doomed to it. But people remain skeptical because of the sample that we're looking at. These biggest loser contestants who lost, let's see, uh, they're like, a, like they, they lost pounds. 58. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Over 100 pounds. And they lost it in the most uh, brutal and, and, and unsustainable un, um, of ways. And so 
there were a couple of key publications that came out subsequently. There was a 2018 publication by Austin Dorf and colleagues, and then a 2020 publication by Martins and colleagues that did not find the same kind of doomsday scenario for metabolism in weight loss maintainers. Um, so whereas um, uh, Johansson and uh, Father Gill and colleagues, whereas they found a metabolic disadvantage of, of about 500 calories at the end of the rainbow that kind of just stayed there years after the loss. Ostendorf and Martins found just virtually nothing, very negligible uh, amounts of uh, metabolic slowing or negli negligible amounts of adaptive thermogenesis, which would be, once again, um, reductions in energy expenditure that are hard to account for. Like you don't know, like, how did this happen? We can't relate it or, or we can't correlate it to drops in lean body mass. So they didn't find that. They didn't find that business. <laughs> but guess what? They, they did not use Biggest Loser contestants right. as their subjects. Were they looking they at, sorry, were they looking at only decreases in resting model, metabolic rate or were they looking at uh, decreases in, like how, are you, how can one quantify a decrease in NEAT? Or, or is there an assumption that it's there? Or are they just looking at percentage of decrease of resting metabolic rate that you can't explain just by how much how much smaller they are. They they looked at every they they looked at all of the components of energy expenditure in order to um, deductively arrive um, at at their their conclusions. So, but they did directly measure resting metabolic rate, and um, that's how they were able to determine that at the compared to the, the the end of the weight loss to um, their to one to two years after their weight loss, there was no uh, adaptive thermogenesis or metabolic adaptation. I mean, the the figure that Ostendorf cranked out what was the the numbers were all over the place because some people did experience some kind of metabolic slowing but just as many people experienced either nothing or actually a metabolic increase. So they, in aggregate, could not say that there was a, that there was consistent evidence for metabolic slowing. So their conclusion was that we, we just simply cannot say that people are doomed to have a, in quotes, slower metabolism after weight loss that can't be predicted by losses in lean body mass. And um, in contrast to that, uh, Martin's found, um, th they didn't necessarily see that, that wide range of individual variation of, of metabolic slowing versus metabolic increases. Uh, they just found even less variation and even less metabolic adaptation to the point that at the one and two year follow-up, there was just negligible. We're talking like, if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I can zoom in on this. So at one, I, I'll just, I'll just read it verbatim. Okay, in a subset of women with data at all time points, metabolic adaptation was present after weight loss, at um, and the the weight loss was a 5.5 month period to, to lose the weight, but not at one or two years after the weight loss. So at two years after the weight loss, the metabolic adaptation was 19 calories on average, which in practical terms is nothing. virtually nothing. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah, it, when you look at these different publications and compare them to the Biggest Loser study, there's something going on with the Biggest Loser study that might only be applicable to Biggest Loser contestants. Right, and I, I think of the differences between those two populations and uh, what were they? What were the people in the later publications doing to kind of, you know, uh, decrease the average metabolic adaptation that we see? Were they just losing slower? Were they, you know, maintaining lean body mass and resistance training? Were they, you know, increasing their steps to, you know, decrease or to combat that, that decrease in NEAT? I mean, what are some of those things that those people were likely doing 
And we know what the biggest loser people were doing, and we can assume that it's something of the opposite in the normal population, not losing as quickly, as aggressively, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the potential addition of pharmacological uh, help. And we look at the average person who might have a relatively significant amount of weight to lose and are some of those things like potentially losing slower, like diet breaks and maintenance phases, like, you know, maintain maintenance of lean body mass, you know, increasing or maintenance of steps to combat that decrease in need. Are those the things that it's that are more likely have that external validity, that real world uh, uh, application? Yeah, I, I think that granted there, there, are going to be gray areas and gaps in, in how they they monitored these people and accounted for all of the variables. And I'm not talking about the biggest loser folks. I'm talking about the the Ostendorf folks and, and the Martins and colleagues folks. You know, they they didn't necessarily have everything optimal either. So they there was not a specific resistance training protocol that was imposed. Whereas if there was, then we might even see increases in resting metabolic rate. And that has been seen uh, in, in people who have lost a substantial amount of weight and with resistance training involved, even with very low calories, um, there has been increases shown in resting metabolic rate. So I think that one of the, the, the easy kind of take home fixes that, that we can kind of spit out there as bullet points for people who are trying to avoid metabolic adaptation anywhere near what was seen in the biggest loser contestants. Um, you mentioned a couple of the factors too. weight loss. That isn't just crash light speed. <laughs> um, so s- slower weight loss, but then that would be also regulated by the objective of maintaining lean body mass as you lose body fat. And that would involve, among other things, that that would involve optimizing protein intake and making sure that the resistance training protocol is in place throughout the the process. And um, usually if you were to kind of set goals for, for in quotes, safe weight loss, that really isn't going to be much more than about 1% of your total body weight lost per week. Um, if you were to kind of look at a maximum to kind of average at, if you want to safely lose body weight, um, and and that would involve kind of keeping that limit, and then you you kind of have a have an idea that if you don't lose more than one percent of your body weight per week, chances are you're you're hanging on to a decent amount of lean body mass while you're dropping fat mass. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't think we can talk about metabolic adaptation without not, without talking about starvation mode or, you know, hitting a fat loss plateau. And I'd love to talk about what might be happening when somebody quote unquote hits a plateau. And we can talk about why we're going to throw some quotes on there in a second, but what's happening when somebody hits a plateau, what's happening when somebody says they're in starvation mode or asks if they're in starvation mode. It, it is a highly individual matter. So I just have to speak in, in, in generalities. Um, usually when somebody hits a plateau, it is a, it's a plateau in, in, in compliance. <laughs> it's a, it's kind of, a, it's what I call compliance inconsistency. So when, when people are hitting a plateau there, it can only happen through one of two things. Number one, they could genuinely be at energetic equilibrium. So their energy intake equals their energy output on an ongoing basis. And so they're at their new maintenance, at their new equilibrium. And then the other reason for hitting a plateau is that you're not at your new maintenance, but you're just having a hard time consistently complying with your program. And that can be the fault of the coach, or it can be the fault of the the client or a combination of both. And um, a lot of times people think that they can comply with a program five to six days out of the week and blow it on uh, days five or days um, five, six, and seven, you know? (laughs) So, I think that that people kind of have to get it in their heads that you can undo a week's worth of, of dieting pretty dang easily in a day where you just let the whole thing go. 
And a lot of times when people do binge and when the binge is severe enough, it goes either um, underreported or, or completely unreported, just swept under the rug. Um, and so that, that is a kind of a big issue with, um, with, with plateaus is people's mm, lack of compliance consistency. And this, is, this actually has been seen in research by Lichtman and colleagues in, I think it was 1992, where um, overweight subjects, overweight and obese subjects were reporting a caloric intake of 1200 calories, yep. but they actually, when, when they were put under the microscope and in the lab, they underestimated their, um, their intake by more than a thousand calories. So, and they, so they, they underreported their intake by more than a thousand calories. And, uh, they, additionally, they overreported their, their physical activity by, uh, by a few hundred calories on top of it. So their net misreporting, when you look at false re falsely reported intake and output was about 1300 calories that was misreported. And 1300 calories is a big deal for, for some smaller people. That's more than half of their daily requirement. Yep. So, and it, it is a big deal for anybody to misreport 1300 calories, whether they do it on purpose or, or not. I think we need to keep, I think when we use the word plateau, especially as a coach or a client or anybody, we need to keep a high standard of what that means. And I think that there are things like an, uh, a checklist to go through before declaring, like you said, you know, I've reached my new e equilibrium and that keeping a high standard for when we use that word means actually eating or, or, or getting as close to what you're actually supposed to be doing before the next question, which we'll ask is like, what to do if you've actually reached that equilibrium. And I think before mm -hmm. we even ask that, if you're listening, you're like, oh, I'm at a plateau or I don't know if I am like go through the checklist of what you're doing or what you're supposed to be doing and go through that. Like you said, like compliance checklist. And mm -hmm. that needs <clears throat> to be something where you hold, you hold that to a very high standard because it's, 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 it's I feel like it's a broken record and I don't want to be somebody who's attacking the listener here, but it's just very unlikely that you're actually at that equilibrium. It's way more likely that you're not actually eating as much as little as you say you are or moving as much as you say you are. It's possible that you're at equilibrium, but you better be damn sure that you're actually doing the things you say you're doing to declare that you've hit a plateau. Yes. Yes, definitely. And sometimes some really basic stuff like the length of the plateau uh, is deceiving to people because sometimes when folks are stable for a couple of weeks, they start freaking out and, trying different things when the fact of the matter is um, if you're not the same, relatively the same for at least one month, you can't call it a plateau, especially uh, in, in women who um, uh, women who, who are menstruating, you know, that, that whole cycle of water retention and, and non-water retentive that you, that has to be written out full length for the month before you can determine um, whether or whether or not you're comparing apples to apples in terms of same point last month. So, um, so yeah, a length of the plateau has to be a minimum of a month before you can even begin to think of making the, the, these checklists and kind of going down and seeing what you've done and what you haven't done. Yeah. And I, and I think the, there, like you said, there's knowing, uh, non-compliance and unknowingly, unknowingly non-complying. And I think when you mm -hmm. have that either way, um, it comes down to having like an honest, non-judgmental discussion about what you're actually doing and, you know, being real because some of the things that you're going to have to do if you decide that you are actually at equilibrium, some of those things, you don't want to actually do those things unless you have to. I mean, when we talk about, you know, potentially creating a, a larger deficit, like you don't want to have to do those things until you can check off that it is in fact, you know, metabolic adaptation has happened. Um, mm -hmm. And I think even some things like, just allowing a client to take a break, to take a diet break, to maybe even potentially increase calories. I think we see in the research that people are less likely. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You're less likely to underreport when you have more food. And I've seen mm -hmm. that just taking a break or just like even in conjunction, taking a diet break at higher calories, some of my clients will see that scale start to move down. And whether that's a drop in cortisol and water weight or an increase in adherence and you're still in a deficit uh, is, is somewhat irrelevant, but it's 
it just is important for you to be extremely open and honest with yourself about what you're doing before you declare it's metabolic adaptation that you've hit a plateau because you don't you don't want to do those things if you don't have to yeah yeah and, and that's a good point you make about uh the option to to take a break or or even the option to see if you can just maintain the progress that you already made and i i, I always say that it's not just a legitimate goal to lose body fat. It's just as legitimate and just as challenging of a goal, even if you're not at your ultimate goal level of body fat. It's just as legitimate and challenging to see if you can maintain the progress that you've made thus far. And so uh, you can challenge people to maintain um, their their current progress. And I think that... Um, not enough coaches do that because coaches get caught up in the pushing forward routine just as much as clients get caught up in being impatient to, to reach their goals. And, and so um, a underutilized uh, goal to, to kind of help your, your clients through is let's see if you can maintain this for another month, like another two months. Let, let's see if you can maintain this instead of just pushing forward with further weight loss. And, also related to that is what you mentioned is is even just ratcheting things up, um, going to um, in quotes maintenance levels or getting out of that that caloric deficit for for a time period, and then having the dieter take a psychological break from dieting, and maybe kind of return to prior performance levels activity with lifting. Uh, with, with even with endurance goals. And I think that that all kind of provides a, a psychological break. Yeah. And I just got a, a cue from, from zoom here that my connection was unstable. So were you, were you able to hear that? We got it through. It was a little, it was a little bit, uh, skippy, but we're good to go. No worries. Um, no problem. It came through for sure. I think. Okay. Um, okay. I think you said something that okay. I, cool. we gloss over quite a bit, and it's, it's the recognition of a psychological break. And I think that there's this idea that taking diet breaks and even you know the discussion about refeeds is never ending. It's it's in the context that, that this is a psychological break. And when we look at the unknowing misreporting um, or underreporting, then taking a psychological break can help you actually, it's not doing something to your, it's not doing something permanent, something long-term to your metabolism. It's giving you a psychological break. And I, I think that um, we make diet breaks out to be this thing that is going to, you know, get your leptin back where it is, where it needs to be, get your, you know, resting metabolic rate, your neat back up and yeah, it'll be like that while you're taking the break, but we're not having the diet breaks are not having a super long lasting physiological effect on your body, but they are giving you a psychological break that will help you get back to doing what you need to be doing. And that doesn't necessarily need to be communicated by the coach. Sometimes it's something where it's, it's often better left unsaid. It's like, Hey, let's take a break when we come back. And people think that, Oh, okay. I took a break. I came back and magically we pushed through this plateau. When in reality, taking a step mm -hmm. back allowed you to be a bit more effective at the given goal than you were previously because of whatever, you know, accumulation of diet fatigue and such. Yeah. And, and in the literature that that's, they called that planned hedonic deviation and it's been shown to be effective for long-term dietary adherence. So it's it kind of this understanding at the outset of a program where a coach or the practitioner tells the client, this is how it's going to go. We are going to have planned breaks along the way. And with that knowledge, the client is empowered because they don't see these breaks as falling off the wagon or cheating. They see it and they know that it's part of the plan. So it's kind of analogous to comparing, uh, let's say, a scenario where you, you're the practitioner and you point towards the horizon to your client and say, okay, I want you to just run until you hit that horizon. It's really, really far. It's, it's many hundreds of miles away, but just, just go good luck. You know, that it's the difference between that and pointing to the horizon, but also pointing to the many rest stops along the way and saying, um, these rest stops will 
provide you with a breather from from the the journey ahead from from the uh the the treachery <laughs> of the task at hand yeah so i think that uh it's really important to kind of frame things that way for clients at the beginning so they don't look at these breaks as some sort of haphazard uh failing if you will from the diet that is super well said i think uh, acknowledging it as part of the plan and you know something that's not them having done something wrong it's something that is pre-planned that you bake into the program for the goal of actually a better outcome like the the understanding that you'll actually do better with breaks than without breaks is something mm -hmm. that i try and communicate early on in any client's program i think that it might have been mike isertel as i'm starting to think about it who uh just this sort of analogy sounds like him he's like he says something like well if aliens came down to earth and they took over all of the humans and they wanted to make us as productive as possible, they wouldn't have us work 24 seven. There's a reason you go home at five. There's a reason there are weekends. And it's not because, you know, the economy and capitalism wants you to have this great, you know, this great life. It's because you'll be more productive with breaks, with a chance to, you know, recharge and re recharge batteries and sleep and have a social life. You'll be better with weekends than without weekends. And it, it is the same argument for deloads. And when you, you know, for anybody out there, obviously familiar, I talk about deloads a lot is you'll do better in your training block with deloads across the year mm -hmm. than without them. And, and you might say, oh, that's time spent not training. And we can forget about the physiological benefits of, of, of deloads strictly from a psychological perspective. You'll likely put forth more effort and get better output in those blocks of time where you are training because you have a light at the end of the tunnel, because you have those breaks baked in. And they're not some, like you said, haphazard, uh, you know, rolling with the punches. And then when you mess up, we take a break. It's something that's baked into the program for a purpose. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's jump to like what would happen if it is metabolic adaptation. And I think something that I say to whenever there is a moment where a client is feeling a bit frazzled by what to do, especially in a, in a context of potential plateau, you always have three choices. You can eat less, we can push the deficit further, you know, or move more, we could talk about that in a second, or we can eat the same, and like you said, maintain where we're at and be more patient, and A, you'll maintain, which is great, which is an end, which is a goal in and of itself, or you'll actually see that you were retaining water, there was some cyclical issue, or you know, more salt or more cortisol, whatever. Or you can eat more and we can push the diet, you know, a diet break or a maintenance phase. And you always have mm -hmm. those three choices. And if you look down the road at the pros and cons, you know, short-term, long-term of those decisions, and you objectively decide what is most important to you and what do you think you're ready for? I mean, if I give you somebody those three choices and they're in a plateau, it's like, do you have it in you to increase your output, your, your, your exercise? Do you have it in you to decrease calories? Is that even practical? Can we even get the, the nutrients necessary for health with the amount of cal calories you might have to go to? And if not, then we have two choices. We, we hold the line and we, and we are patient and we try and stick it out or we consider eating more. And, and I feel like when you give people those three options, it's kind of like, okay, these are my choices and these are the pros and cons and these are the outcomes that I can expect. And it just becomes a lot easier to discuss. At right there, I mean, you really nicely captured the value of a coach. Um, just providing that communication and providing those options to the client or to the athlete is, I mean, that that's the essence of, of what makes us effective and, and necessary for helping the process along. Because a lot of the times that um, the client or the athletes themselves they can't necessarily view <laughs> their options very objectively, let alone know what the options are. And so I, I think that that's a huge point to, to be made about the coaching process and why it's so important. Absolutely. Now, now, is there some, let's say you have somebody and this will be the last scenario and, and I'll, I'll let you wrap up. I know your time is very valuable, but let's say you have somebody who has lost quite a bit of weight and maybe mm -hmm. they've had a reduction in eat and maybe a, what maybe they're one of the people who has had a slight uh, uh, metabolic adaptation of their resting metabolic rate and they are effectively operating on less calories than the average person would be at their body weight because they have, you know, in the pursuit of losing, you know, 50 to 100 pounds, they are now, they may have incurred some metabolic adaptation, maybe a very small percentage. What are some, what, what position are they in? What are their choices? What can they do? Like, 
if there is some form of permanent metabolic adaptation, even if it's a small percentage, is it is it best for most people to assume it's very small and not let it consume them and assume that they can potentially override it with external factors? What is that person left to do? How can they potentially reverse some of those? Um, maybe it's a decrease in leptin. Maybe it's a decrease in neat. Like maybe it's a decrease in resting metabolic rate beyond their their weight loss. Like, are there things that they can do? Is is any of that permanent metabolic adaptation reversible? I think that um, really that your options are kind of slim pickings. Um, you can what you can do is gently adjust the goal towards a, a focus on either <laughs> improving and, and and this is. This is for the purpose of making the client not kind of throw their hands up and give up on the progress that they've made already. Uh, I, I wouldn't totally discount the possibility that there may be some metabolic adaptation that would be a bummer to kind of dwell on and, and, and accept. So if you gently shift the goal to some sort of performance goal, um, some sort of athletic performance goal, whether it's a strength goal or an endurance goal, then that can potentially re-engage the, the client or the athlete in, um, in a journey that sort of takes the focus off of, uh, of energy balance and puts it a bit more on performance or, or functional capacity. Um, uh, another option is to steer the client towards the goal of putting on lean body mass. And that actually would have direct uh, mitigation or sort of have, have an, a, a direct opposing effect on their slowed metabolisms. So if you just kind of redirect the goal and say, let's see what we can do to methodically put on some muscle and gain lean body mass, gain some size, gain some strength. I think that some, some definitely some good things can come of that and, and potentially some surprising things uh, in terms of uh, increasing resting metabolic rate that can become, um, that can result from that switching of goals. Uh, and there is a study by, by Clark and colleagues or actually, no, it's just Clark himself. <laughs> Hold on, I, I'll, I can find the, the actual title of, of this study because it, it, it's very kind of heartening results that, that were found by not focusing on weight loss per se and not focusing on energy balance per se. So Clark. And, and okay, so here we are. This is a 2018 study. And the title is Periodization of Exercise While Focusing Strictly on Improvements in, for Individuals Who Aren't. So this is by Clark, and it's a 2018 study. And um, yeah, you, you can just Google the title. And, and you would be able to, you'd be able to find it. And it, it's really cool because they, they didn't focus on weight loss. They just focused on improved performance. And um, the diet was, was relatively simple. Protein was adequate. I believe it was set at like 1.5 grams per kilo of body weight. So adequate protein. Uh, they restricted carbohydrates to 100 grams per day. So they kind of uh, defaulted this um, this, this restriction of carbohydrates defaulted them to a total uh, energy restriction scenario. Yep. Um, but other than that, they just said, okay, let's, let's set these goals for strength um, and endurance. And they just put them through, through the protocol and they were able to lose a, a substantial amount of body weight and body fat. And it was a successful program. And um, the, the results were, were maintained in the long term. So um, that kind of goes back to my point, like what do you do with somebody who has incurred some metabolic adaptation? Um, I would, I, I would, you know, look at the, the potential for 
shifting the goals and in the process, possibly uh, reversing that metabolic adaptation. Yeah, I definitely think building muscle would be building muscle and you know, if you're picking a strength goal, it can often, mm-hmm. you can often get both of those. Um, if if yeah. it's somebody who hasn't been resistance training particularly hard and now you, you pivot them to a, you know, some, a deadlift goal or a, a bench goal or whatever goal that you want performance wise, you're probably going to get a little bit of that muscle gain as well, especially if you're titrating calories upward where they need to be. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think in general, just as a general uh, uh, piece of advice for anybody listening, if you're struggling to get energy balance out of your head and it, all you're thinking about is the in and the out and the tracking and it's sending you over the edge, man, switch to a performance goal. Like focus on getting one chin up, two push-ups, deadlift, double your body weight, whatever it is. It could be a very basic goal. It doesn't need to be something as complex as that, but it's good things happen when you focus on getting stronger. A lot of the stars mm-hmm. tend to align when that happens. And if, yes, I think I think that, I think think that of some of the clients that come to mind that are, that like you said, are at the end of the rainbow where they have lost a lot of weight and they've done really great things. And there is a bit of metabolic adaptation just from some of the things that you can kind of tease out from discussions with them. And it's like, okay, like let's put body composition and energy balance on the back burner and let's shoot for some of these performance goals. And you are either going to push through um, and continue to see progress or you'll at the very least create a better life for yourself, a better life, a better state of mind, um, not so focused on that all the time. People have to remember that they are their own worst critics. And a lot of times people over-criticize themselves uh, to an unreasonable degree. And um, people tend to set unreasonable goals and and people set unreasonable standards for themselves in terms of what is sustainable. Um, and, And this is not, not in a small part driven by the types of physiques that they're seeing in various media, whether it be Instagram or magazines or even just watching sports. Um, it's easy to look at the, for example, the, the welterweight class or the middleweight class or the light heavyweight class in the UFC and go, man, these guys look amazing. I'm, I wanna look like that. But then you realize that these guys are in season They've been basically training their brains out for three to six hours a day for the, for the last several months. And um, they don't necessarily look like that all the time. And, um, and of course, the same goes with physique competition and, and, and that sort of thing. But people will still be very tough on themselves and be un, unreasonably tough on themselves as far as critiquing their own physiques like people will just just really hate that 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 layer of body fat that's covering their lower ab row you know what i mean totally. uh people will just agonize over over things that are very unhealthy to agonize over so it, it's those things that too that can be difficult to change like from the coach's perspective the coach can say you know you're at a really good spot you're you're at a really um good spot in terms of both health and, and fitness and aesthetics, but then we, being the, the harsh self-critics, will be mm, just not where I, I want to be. You know, so it, it it's unfortunate that people are it, that people are just so critical of themselves, and that's something that would be very difficult to uh, modify or correct. And that's certainly. Uh, uh bit of a Pandora's box if we're going to talk about, you know, personal expectations uh, placed upon ourselves based on external societal norms and social media and how that drives us to maybe do some of the things that actually do incur metabolic adaptation as opposed to taking things slow and steady half, you know, half a percent to 1% per week, resistance train, enough protein, good sleep, you know, we might deviate from that in the pursuit of some of those you know, societal norms and external, you know, forces that, that are, that are upon us. Um, we're, we're coming up on an hour here. I want to be respectful of your time. Tell everybody where they can find you. Tell them about the research review. Tell them everything. Uh, they got to follow you if they don't. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for, you know, allowing me the opportunity to talk to your audience. I know that we, we had another item on the table. We we're going to talk about 
anabolic windows and oh, anabolic no. garage doors and stuff. Part two. And, uh, you know, we, we can definitely do that in, in another episode. Uh, you can find me at alanaragon.com and that will give you the links to all of my stuff. Um, my uh, social media activity is kind of a, a mix between Instagram and occasionally Twitter, occasionally Facebook. Facebook seems to be really dying though, man. Um, I don't know what's going on. It, it's just, I don't know. I'm getting this this slow death vibe from mm. Facebook as, as far as people caring about talking about uh, fitness and nutrition, but maybe just because it's the, the heat the final stretch of the election cycle nobody gives a crap about that's true fitness anymore yep. Yep. For sure. <laughs> they won't give a crap until after no the, after november the only thing more uh well, yeah. polarizing <laughs> you're right <laughs> then nutrition would be politics yeah. right so so yeah um my research review uh the details on that can be found at alanaragon.com and uh, Jordan, it, it's an honor to, to know that you are subbed to the research review. Uh, uh, you've said some good things about it. So yeah, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. It's been a, it's been a blast to be following you and all your work for a very, very long time. So I very much appreciate you coming on. Very blessed to have you here. And can't say that uh, not a bit of a selfish move for me to be able to talk to some of my favorite people. So I appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, Alan. Awesome, buddy. Have a good Keep one. that stage name. Don't don't ever drop that stage for name. For sure, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.